For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're continuing through. The good news is we have three weeks in a row to get through. We're going we're gonna to, fi- I promise, we are going to finish this book. And um, we are in the last section of, of uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, the context here, as we've talked, as we've gone through, is, you know, he wrote 1 Corinthians before 2 Corinthians. We know that, right? And uh, it was a letter filled. It was a heavy letter. There was a lot going on in the church of Corinth, and Paul was heavily reproving them, uh, as also false teachers were moving into the city of Corinth and uh, attacking Paul. They were attacking his character, his ministry, uh, his authority. They were saying, you know, this Paul who talks about grace and love, you know, that's all fine and good, but we all know that you have to follow the law and you have to dress a certain way and you have to act a certain way and you have to eat certain foods if you want to be accepted by God. So they were attacking not just Paul, but the teachings of Jesus Christ moving into these, com- these newly founded spiritual communities and trying to undermine the powerful ideas that Jesus had brought in, in his teachings and in his ministry. And so if we look at the, at the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole, we see one way to look at it is we can v- divide it up into basically three different sections. Chapters 1 through 5, he defended the authenticity of his work Uh, Paul's talking about why he is actually from Christ, why he is empowered as an apostle, and why they should listen to him. In in chapters 6 through 9, he's pleading with them to continue in the work that God is doing. He's saying, look, this is the vision, and this is what God has established for us to do. Let's join together and let's unite to continue the good work according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And in this last section that we're opening This morning is chapters 10 through 13, where he's really exposing and kind of going on the counteroffensive with these false teachers to answer and disprove their accusations against him and really against the teachings of Christ. And so that's where we are in the book is we're beginning that section in verse 10. And he says, And 10, 1 through 2, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I purpose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, that's like the most confusing sentence ever. And, you know, I really like the NASB. I like that translation, the New American Standard translation of the Bible, because it's a very literal translation. And what I mean by that is it's not always worded all that well because they're trying to, the, as they translate it from the original Greek into English, they're trying to do as little interpretation about what it means. They're trying to give you the most straightforward so that the interpretation is up to the reader using good hermeneutical tools. But the problem with the NASB is sometimes you get sentences like this where they're literally translating it, and you're like, I need another version. So when that happens, I always pull out an NIV or or maybe an NLT and just use that, having read 
the most literal translation, to see if I can help make a little bit more sense. And we jump over to the NLT, and we have that same exact verse with uh, a little bit more of an artistic translation. It says, now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from far away. Well, I'm begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act from human motives. That's a little more clear. What's happening is, is he's beginning to address the attacks that are against them, right? The attack against Paul here from the uh, false accusers, the false teachers in Corinth, is he was not a real apostle. <coughs> you know, that would be easy. He wasn't one of the 12. He didn't even become a Christian uh, until after Jesus was resurrected. He was a persecutor of the church and a Pharisee. Uh, and so it would be easy to attack him along those lines. They, you, clearly, you could tell by his answers that they were claiming that he was arrogant and he was selfish. They're claiming that he was trying to take advantage of the Corinthians in some way. And in this particular section, it's clear that they're, they had a rap against Paul that was, you know, oh, when he comes, he's all nice. But look, you know, when he writes you letters, he's bold. But when he's face to face with you, he's a coward. And so Paul's sort of seizing on that accusation and saying, you know, I know that uh, when I'm with you, I'm a coward, and when I'm far away, I write boldly, but let's get this sorted out so that when I come to you, I don't have to be bold, right? And so he's beginning to address these accusations that are being brought against him. He goes on then and says in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, this is a great memory verse right here. It's a great verse because it, it really captures uh, in a detailed and powerful way this concept of spiritual warfare that we want to talk about over the next two weeks. Let's break it down a little bit just to make sure that we all understand uh, the language that he's using here. When he says, even for though we walk in the flesh, all he's saying is, even though we have bodies, we, are, we have a physical component to who we are, just like everybody else, our battle as believers in Jesus Christ is not a physical battle. We are not involved in beating people up cutting them down with swords and sh or shooting people. This is a war of ideas. This isn't a battle when we talk about spiritual warfare where we're going to go hurt people physically. This is an, a battle where we're going to come with God's truth and we're going to attack arguments. God is going to work through us to bring down powerful lies that have been launched by the enemy of God for the purposes of keeping people from having a relationship with God. When he talks about these fortresses, he's saying that the enemy will build walls of lies around people. And the only way to destroy those lies is to bring truth and love to bear and to get in and involved with people's lives and allow them to be exposed with the reality of who God really is. God's enemies, he says, use speculation, not truth. 
That's so important that we understand that, that they'll look out and they'll try to reason from themselves, but they can't bring truth because that's God's territory. Those are the weapons of the God of the Bible, is truth. So what they do is try to take the truth and spin it and twist it and pervert it for their own purposes. And he says, they, enemies of God, they rely on pride and human, the human desire to be our own God. They want to play on your and my weaknesses. Our desire, our God-given desire, we want to be significant because we were made for significance. But we are not God. And so the enemies of God move in and they build these fortresses of lies and ideas around. They, they try to do it with everyone to try to cut them off from the reality of there is something greater than ourselves. And that's what he's describing here. And he finally says, that's why we take all our thoughts captive. The ideas in our head need to be closely examined and compared to the truth of God. The battle of ideas is fought and won in your heart and your mind as it pertains to your life. And many of us naturally kind of go through life without challenging the ideologies that are coming at us. Advertising is an industry that's sort of built on, on the hope that we won't understand what, how they're trying to pluck our heartstrings. But everywhere this is done. All kinds of ideologies. All, we are constantly bombarded with ideas in the hopes that those ideas will spur us into various actions. So what are the ideas that are coming at you? And which ones are taking root in your mind? And what do they mean? And how do they compare with the truth of God? It's a pretty incredible picture, sophisticated picture of the human experience. And like I said before, probably the most succinct and best description of spiritual battle in the whole Bible. And so that's, that's what we want to talk about more in depth is this issue of spiritual war. It's a critical part of the biblical worldview. You know, a lot of times people look at this and they're like, oh God, I mean, we're talking about something here and you're talking about angels and demons and Satan and God and you know, all this stuff and you're like, can't we just, isn't that just something we can move aside, right, and just take the parts about love and, and you know, those things, but this, this all sounds incredibly superstitious. Well, you know, we might be tempted to do that, but if it is true that there is a battle being waged and we are somehow engaged in that battle, whether we choose to be or not, how dangerous is it to be on a battlefield and deny the fact that there's a war going on? That's incredibly perilous if you're running around like nothing's wrong and there's bullets whizzing by your head. And spiritually speaking, that's why this is so important is because the Bible is very clear that there is a war of ideas happening and we are involved. God has a plan for the redemption of the human race and God's enemies want to accuse God to us. They want us to believe that God isn't there, God isn't good, God is evil, God is selfish, whatever, as long as we don't believe God is good and loving. And they want to encourage our rebellion and self-rule, which frankly, all of us 
are all too eager to be encouraged in the direction of being prideful and selfish. We're caught in the middle of this spiritual battle, but we are not neutral. We cannot be neutral. Whether we choose a side or not, we are engaged. This battle is very much about us. And again, this sounds very superstitious. This is archaic. We start thinking about, you know, little devils with pointy horns and goat feet and pitchforks, and we're like, come on. None of that imagery comes from Scripture. None of that picture. That is the musings of archaic ancient man. But the Bible is not. The biblical picture here is that we have beings that have thoughts, that have minds, that have free will, that have choice. They're like us. They're different in some ways, but primarily the idea is is that there is a spiritual component to the world. And we say, okay, you know, even that I have problems with. And maybe you do, but do you have problems with the idea that you have a soul, that there's a spiritual component to you? If you're willing to accept that you will continue in some way to exist after your body is gone, what you are saying is is that spiritual beings are real. There is something more to you than your physiology than you're accepting a spiritual dynamic. That you and who you are is somehow contained in something that will go on after your body is gone. And so if you accept that, then why wouldn't there and why couldn't there be beings that are in that state, that are spiritual beings? And that's the argument that the Bible makes. God himself, if you believe in God, you believe in a spiritual being. And these spiritual beings are very much interested in what's happening with us. To understand that more fully, we really have to go all the way back to the beginning and to set this up so that we can understand it in its proper context. This is not fanciful, you know, superstitious thinking. This is very much tied to what the Bible describes as at the root of the human condition, the, the, the human experience and our purpose and our value as beings. If we go back to Genesis 1 and we look at the creation of man and woman in the garden. On the sixth day, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And when the Bible repeats something so many times, we were created in the image of God. We were created in the likeness of God. We were created in his image, in the image of God he created us, right? When you see that kind of thing, what you're, what you're, you're seeing is this is important and it needs to be emphasized. Of all the things that God has created described in the Bible, there is only one being that is specifically singled out as being created in his image meaning that there is something unique about the human race. We're created by God to reflect his nature, his character, his goodness, and to work together with him as caretakers of his creation. That's the biblical view 
of our purpose to love God, to love each other, and to take care of His creation here on earth. A beautiful, wonderful picture of who we really are, who it is that we were created to be. And in Genesis 1.31, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The day that God created us, He looked at what He had made us and declared us very good. We were born, Adam and Eve were made and were created to be on God's side. They were made good, image bearers of his glory, and they were good. But God also gave Adam and Eve free will, the ability to make meaningful choices. And we read in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And so he creates this opportunity where he has made us good, he has made our inclinations good, and he has made us image bearers of his own nature, of his own creation, but he does give us choice, and that's what the tree represents. It represents we have the ability, it's rather remarkable if you think about it, we can tell the all-powerful creator God of the universe, no. And we can go our own way. And so those are the two things we, we see here. The tree represents a choice. Will we believe God, what he says? Will we trust him? Or will we rebel against him and go our own way? And he's, he warns, that if we eat of this tree, if we rebel against him, the results of that will be death. Don't eat from this tree. Why put the tree there at all? Because he wanted us to be able to make choice, to choose whether to follow him or not. And so this spiritual war, we begin to see how these kinds of battles that we're talking about take place in the realm of the ideas. God set up a situation where we could choose to believe him that what he says is true or we could cho choose to go our own way. Do you believe what God has said or do you not trust him, right? That's the battleground for the kinds of ideas. And then right after that, the enemy of God shows up and what does he do? He makes a different argument. His argument is, can be found in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And you get to see the working tactics of God's enemy begin to unfold before you in this incredible narrative. Satan, knowing that God has given us free will, wants to get us to use that free will in the same way that he did. Satan is a spiritual being that was also created good, but chose to rebel against God. And he's looking at us and he's saying, here's a chance to get more of God's creatures on my side. And so he shows up, and what does he do? He tries to get them to doubt whether they have even accurately understood what God has said. All he needs to do at the beginning is just say, really? Are you sure that you heard God correctly? 
that you shouldn't, it's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You sure that God told you that this was bad? And you can see they're like, well, I, I'm pretty sure, he was, yeah, he said we die, you know, if we eat from it, right? And he's like, really? God told you that? Well, I'm telling you, you won't die. You won't die if you eat from that tree. He directly contradicts God's word. God has said, this will kill you. And Satan says, no way. You know, there's, a, there's, there's more than just God in this universe. And I've been around for a long time. I know God quite well. And not everything he says is true. And in fact, he has lied to you about this. And let me also tell you why God has lied to you. Because he knows that in the day that you eat of this tree, not only will you not die, but your eyes will open and you will become like God. And you will know what good and evil is for yourself. It's an argument. It's an incredibly powerful, important battle. The first battle in this spiritual war was a doozy. He accuses God of having selfish motives. God wants you under his thumb. I know you're new. You just, you know, you just were created and all. So, you know, let me fill you in on how things really work down here in the garden, okay? Uh, God is not good. He is a jealous God who wants you to obey him and does not want you to be like him. He wants you to need him. That's just the kind of, of person he is. And I was duped by it myself for years. But you could be like me. You could be your own God. All you have to do is eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Who do they believe? Which argument is the truth? He claims that doing the opposite of what God says is actually in their best interest. God is not for you. He says, I am. I want you to be savvy like me. And you need to throw off the oppression of God and munch on that fruit. And you will know what I know and your eyes will be opened. This is a battle. A battle about who is the reliable source of truth? Exactly how Paul was framing it in 2 Corinthians 10. It's not a battle of arrows and swords and spears. It's a battle of thoughts and ideas. And what we believe about truth and what things we choose to put into action, the ideas that we put into action, actually have far more serious implications than physical life and death. That's very hard for us to see. I mean, physical death, that's clear. Spiritual death seems far more ambiguous to us. Truth is, is that we're very strange creatures from a cosmic perspective, right? Uh, in, in God's creation, you have spiritual beings, God, angels, and demons, things like that, Beings that are, 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 are spiritual in their nature. And then you have physical beings, 
which is basically all life on earth other than human beings. You know, you know we're not saying animals are unimportant and that they're not meaningful and that God doesn't care about animals. But what we're saying is, is they're not moral beings. There's something fundamentally different between an animal and a human being. And that difference should be very clear, right? So we have spiritual beings and we have physical beings and then we have these really weird, bizarre hybrids called people who have physical bodies but have an eternal soul, a spirit that continues on. And so we're this strange mix of flesh and spirit and physical death. We've seen that. Right? And it's horrible, it's disturbing, it's tragic, it's, it's visceral, it's tangible. To watch the life go out of a body is very disturbing. Sometimes people like to be like, oh, it's a beautiful part of life. No, it is not. If you have ever been around when somebody you love has passed away, there's nothing beautiful about it. It's awful. That's the physical side. And that's why physical war is so tangibly painful and bad is people get hurt, they get damaged, they die, and there's a high cost because people who are with us are no longer with us. And they're often the young, people who haven't had the chance to live out their lives. War is terrible, physical war is awful. But when you die, your spirit continues on and you are not lost. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the journey. There is great hope to be had and great comfort in the reality that we are more than the sum of our physical parts. That there is truly a spiritual component to us and that death, when we die, we are not lost. So a sword or a gun or a physical weapon cannot touch your true spiritual self. No one can cut you down in spirit with a physical weapon. But with an idea or an argument, in the same way that an idea or an argument cannot touch your body, it can touch your soul. It can impact who you really are. And that's what Paul is trying to frame as he's being attacked by these false teachers, they're bringing ideas. And Paul's saying, look, this battle is even a higher stake battle than a physical war. The example we've been looking at with Adam and Eve gives us a, a clear picture of how stakes, high stakes this battle can be. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit. They rebelled against God. That resulted in what is known as the fall of mankind that it forever changed the human experience. It means that we all switched sides. We were born in the image of God, and we were born good on God's team, but because of their rebellion, and we are all descended from them, we are born in the image of God still. We are created in the same way, but we're born to the other side. We're born spiritually dead. That's a huge consequence that as a result of that choice, every single human being that would come after them would bear the consequences because they believed an argument 
They acted on a lie because of an idea. All the pain, all the evil, all the suffering perpetrated by the human race in all of human history is a direct result, according to Scripture, of the lie that Adam and Eve believed. That's how high stakes this war is. And as a result of it, we're born on the wrong side. Adam and Eve didn't die physically when they ate the fruit, not immediately. It wasn't like it was poison and they just fell over. They died spiritually. They became disconnected. As they chose against God, they stepped away from the source of life and set themselves up to be their own gods where they would decide right and wrong for themselves. Romans 5 puts this in some really interesting language. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. All sin can be, can be traced back to the lie that Adam and Eve believed. However, God is loving. God is good. He is merciful. And He loves us and came in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could be made spiritually alive. There was no need for this when we were born spiritually alive. But now we are born spiritually dead but we have the same choice that Adam and Eve had. We just have it from the other side. They were born alive and could choose death. We are born dead and can choose life. But why would we do that? Why would we choose life? Why would we choose to be reconciled to God? Well, it depends on our understanding of that particular argument, doesn't it? The power of an argument. We still have choice. We still have free will. Absolutely. Freely. You could continue to be your own God or you could choose to connect with the all-powerful creator God of the universe. The choice is yours. But what do you believe? In Romans, Paul goes on and explains in 5, 17 through 19, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, He's talking about Adam. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. God's answer to Adam's rebellion is Jesus Christ. And if we go with our father Adam, then we are born into spiritual darkness and rebellion. But if we choose to go over to the other side, we are no longer in Adam, he says, but we are in Christ. And we are given a new life. And we become spiritually alive with the ability to do the things that God created us to do. To love him, love one another, and take care of his creation. For as though through as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. We can be reconnected. And that is so important. That argument is the ultimate 
arguing. Are we going to be reborn into our true spiritual heritage to engage in the true purpose for which God created us and are we going to believe his truth? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death or life, rebellion or unity, Those are the questions, and this is the war of ideas that Paul is referring to. It's the most important aspect of that war. Where do you fall? You, where do you fall on that question? Are you your own God? Choosing right and wrong for yourself. Is that who you are? Is that who you want to be? And how is that working for you? Because many of us have been there. We've spent many years being our own gods. And what we concluded finally, eventually, after much hardship is we're not that good at it because it's not what we're supposed to be. Are you your own God or will you receive God? Will you answer his call and be given new spiritual life? Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 6, he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, being a a famous teacher, says, you know, that's bizarre. What do you mean born again? Right? I was born. How can I be reborn? He says, how can man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, as as spiritual as you want to be, as studious as you are about spiritual things, you are spiritually dead and you need a second birth, a spiritual birth, in order to be with God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You need that spiritual component It's in this argument that Jesus says probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture. John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. There's an argument. You want to talk about an argument? An idea, a powerful idea. We call it the gospel. Meaning it's the good news. It's the best news. Is the tragedy of Adam and Eve and the fall has been redeemed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And our choice has not been robbed from us. Often people read the story of Adam and Eve and they say, well, why am I blamed? I wasn't there. Why do their choices have to affect me? Because Choice affects everyone. We are free, but our choices affect others. But our choice, whether we want to be in rebellion against God or whether we want to be in harmony with God, is still ours. No one can rob you of that choice. No one can rob you of that choice. But they will try to deceive you. They will try 
to build fortresses around your heart and your mind, fortresses of lies that will keep you from believing this. And it's an interesting study. If we break down that verse according to what we've set up in terms of this war of truth, I hope what you will see is that you are under constant bombardment. That there is, in fact, two sides and two sides only to this war. God so loved the world. Does God love the world? That's an important question. Or is he a fantasy? Does he not exist? Or are there many gods? Is there one God who loves the world? Or not? That's an argument. That's a truth. Where do you come down on that? Right? Did God give his son? Did God, the all-powerful creator God of the universe, take on flesh and dwell among us as a demonstration of his mercy and kindness? Did God really do that? Did he walk on earth and live a life as a poor carpenter teaching love and forgiveness and compassion, healing the sick? And was he falsely accused, beaten, and hung on a cross? Did he raise again after three days? Did that happen? Is that real? Or is that the musings of ancient man? Is that a pitiful example of how simple people were 2,000 years ago? Does believing in Jesus result in eternal life? That you could be given a free gift that God freely offers, that God is so good that while we shake our fists at him and we go in rebellion and we do great harm to ourselves and others, while we drive the nails into Jesus' arms, does he truly cry out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Is that who he is? And all I need to do is open my heart to him and say, I need you and I need Jesus' death to apply to me so that I can come home? Or do I need to earn something? Does God have a bunch of hoops that he wants me to jump through? Do I have to go to church and put money in the basket and be a good person? What is it? Is it a free gift or is it something that I earn? That's the argument. That's the battle that's being waged. God has a clear answer to that from Scripture. John 3.16. The enemies of God are twisting and painting it in all kinds of different ways. Does God want to save us? Does He want us? Is He loving? Is He merciful? Does He call us to himself as he desperately searching the earth for the willing? Or is he angry and eager to put us down and judge us and point the finger at us and make us ashamed because he's evil? There's really just two arguments. Two sides competing in your heart trying to get you to make a choice about what you believe is true. Your soul is the battleground for this argument, according to Scripture. And your decision on those questions will determine your role, your involvement, your team in that spiritual war. 
Let's look again at what Paul said. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is the spiritual war that he's talking about. How do we fight this war? How do we get engaged? How do we think about this? If it's really that important and the stakes are that high, what's our place? Well, he already gave us a pretty good clue. Be careful what you think about. What thoughts you allow to take root in your mind? What do you believe? You are bombarded constantly with the lies of God's enemies. Counterfeit truths, fortresses to keep you from him. Money will solve your problems and make you happy. A fortress, a mighty fortress. Materialism. My children will give me ultimate meaning and purpose in my life. Another fortress, looking and casting about, looking for something, someone to make you whole when what you need is Jesus Christ. If I could only find the right person, my soulmate, I would be made whole. Many people have been dashed upon the rocks of that lie. Yes, love is wonderful. A good marriage is an incredible gift. And it can be a great blessing in your life, but what you need is Jesus Christ. I don't know how you make marriage work without God in your life. I should choose comfort over self-sacrifice. It's not my problem. It's not my fight. I need to protect me and my own. And what happens is, is you wind up alone in regret, wondering why all that self-protection amounted in loneliness. Those are the kinds of lies where this battle is fought. Another important caveat to consider is who is the enemy in this war? Right? If you come out of here and you think, you know, we need to go fight the people who don't believe what we believe, then you will have missed a very great and very, very, very important truth. That people are not your enemy. It is not people who disagree with God who are your enemies at the worst, at the very worst. They're the victims of God's enemy. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You have never met a human being who is your enemy. No matter how wicked they are, no matter how against the, the purposes of God they may seem, they are not your enemy, they are your mission. That's how Jesus saw it. That's why when they drove the nails into his arms, he could cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This isn't a war of man against man. This is a war of God against the evil one. And we are called into that battle. The most wicked person you've ever met is a victim of the lies of the enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
His job is to take us down. And there are fortresses, incredible fortresses that have built, been built around the hearts of people who are so angry at God because of all the injustice in the world. And I don't blame them because they haven't been told and they haven't seen the reality of who God truly is. They've been sold a bill of goods, a lie. And how can they think any different? How can they begin to understand the goodness of God? How can you look out into this world and say God is good without the Bible? The true scriptures understood in their context to explain the human condition. Romans 17, 12, 17 through 18, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. People are not your enemy. Romans 12, 21, do not be, overco do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did Jesus come to start a war? To start fighting everyone who disagreed with him and to put them down? Or did he come with an idea? He says that he came to proclaim the day of the Lord and to set free the captives. Captives to what? The false ideas of God's enemies. The scriptures tell us that the gates of hell cannot withstand us. What an interesting picture that is. Why do we want to go into hell? Why are we rapping at the door at the gates of hell and why would we fling them open? Because that's where the people are. That's where the people, the children of God that he loves who have been captured and dragged behind enemy lines into the dark ideology of a corrupt being. And there's still hope that we can bring the love of God the truth of God, but we have to see them for what they are. Children of God, captured by the enemy, who need love and truth and need to have the fortresses around them destroyed by the light and the love of God. How do we get in the fight? How do we take those thoughts captive? How do we use God's truth to win the struggle. Now that we've laid the platform, we've laid the boundaries for what spiritual war is, what do we do? How do we get in there? And that's why this is two parts. <laughs> because there's a, lot, there's a lot more there to talk about, and I'm out of time. So come back next week. God, thanks for this chance to talk about these things. Help us to see the reality of this spiritual battle as we go through the week. We know that we'll be bombarded every day with ideas, with arguments and thoughts. Some of them will be from you. Some of them will be from your enemy. Help us to heighten our awareness of where those arguments are coming from. What do they mean? And help us to see the fortresses that are blocking off our coworkers, our, our loved ones, our, our, our spouses, our children, our neighbors, the people that are stuck that are captive to your enemy, help us to see and to be obedient to you in tearing them down. In Jesus' name, amen.
This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.